again and welcome back to Trapped History. I'm Carla O'Shaughnessy. And I'm Oswin Baker. And we're here to share hidden stories of unsung heroes. In today's episode, we want to introduce you to Emmy Noether, one of the greatest mathematicians you've never heard of. Okay, right. So we're talking numbers, and is this going to be baffling and complex, Carla? Well, we're going to try and demystify it, and it will take us a step closer to learning a little bit more about Emmy because she had the most incredible mind. She was a genius, in fact. Well, okay, all right. That, that's, no that's making it slightly complicated <laughs> for the for the non-geniuses in the room here. Oh. I mean, how how are you at maths? Um, I've got to be honest, I struggled at school with maths. I had to retake maths GCSE. I did get a C in the end, but I think I just scraped <laughs> scraped through, to be honest. How about you? I did maths A-level. Oh, good <laughs> yeah, maths. I, yeah. But the, the only maths I use, uh, quite regularly, the only maths I use is about percentages. But I have to, to relearn that every single time I do it. And I, it's still starting from scratch. And uh, so the, the sort of stuff we may be talking about today, I hope we've got somebody who's going to be able to help us with that. We do. We have a brilliant guest expert who is going to join us and demystify all the hard stuff. Oh, thank God. I thank know. You. <laughs> so tell us about Emmy. This is how important Emmy is. After she dies, Albert Einstein writes her obituary. Albert Einstein, no less. And he says... Fräulein Noether was the most significant creative mathematical genius thus far produced since the higher education of women began. Wow. Yeah, I know. And we're going to come back to that women question in a bit because it is really crucial to how Emmy is treated and undermined throughout her life. And um, why? it's very nice to be on first-name terms with uh, geniuses. Uh, <laughs> why did Albert rate Emmy so highly? Well, by her early 30s, she was spending a lot of time with him, actually. She's helping him to understand general relativity. And some even consider one of Emmy's theorems, Noether's theorem, as it's now called, as important as Einstein's theory of relativity. OK, that sounds pretty impressive. It is, isn't it? But even so, Emmy is pretty much unknown to most of us on the street. And why do we think that is? So there are so many reasons why she's held back and unheard. Firstly, she's a woman in a world totally dominated by men. Men who don't believe women should vote, go to university or hold academic positions. But Emmy does go to university and she finds a way of teaching there. Secondly, Emmy is also Jewish. And remember, this is Germany in the early 20th century and so we'll be coming on to that. And thirdly, she's from a politically radical and left-wing family. She's a member of the socialist SPD in her early years. That's the Social Democrats. She visited Soviet Russia and she's friends with Russian mathematicians in the 1920s. Yeah, but, you know, if she's good enough for Albert Einstein... Well, exactly. So, should we jump in? Absolutely. Let's be having her. So, Carla, first things first, mm -hmm. uh, where are we, when are we? OK, so Emmy's born in 1882 in Bavaria, which is in southern Germany... Her dad's a respected mathematician. He's a professor at the local university. And two of her brothers are no slouches academically either. One's got a chemistry doctorate and the other one makes a name for himself in the world of applied mathematics. I mean, going back to, to her dad, I mean, being Jewish and being a professor of mathematics mm. in southern Germany, I mean, that must have been rare as hen's teeth. It, yep. you know, it, 
surely that will have put a spotlight on his family for for good or ill. Mm, absolutely, and a lot of German Jewish academics really struggled with what they should do. And this is what one mathematician wrote, and this is way before the Nazis. We had to ask ourselves whether we should sacrifice our entire scientific life and existence because of the prevailing narrow-minded views of the government. Or after we had stripped away all religious prejudices, instead convert to Christianity. Which is what he did in the end, and he persuaded a colleague to do the same. Okay, so so they're an academically gifted family. I assume it's a given that Emmy's going to end up where she does. Well, not at all, actually. We've really got to remember the time and the place. And even though her parents are really supportive, in the 1890s, the 1900s, German women aren't encouraged to achieve or excel academically. They're just not listened to or taken seriously. Anyway, I said we've got a special guest on today to help us with the maths and it would be great to introduce you to her right now as I think she's going to have something to say about how women work in the world of maths and STEM right here, right now. So please say a warm hello to Dominique Miranda from the absolutely brilliantly named Sums of Anarchy. You have to check it out. It's a completely new breed of Instagram maths tutorial. I mean, Dominique, if only this was around when I was at school, it would have helped me so much. And thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So we just touched on some of the prejudice that Emmy faced as a woman in Germany a hundred years ago. And how does that compare to what it's like now for women in the maths community and your, your own experience? I mean, thankfully, things definitely have improved. Yeah. I was allowed to study maths at university. <laughs> I was allowed to do more than just audit the classes, which is obviously <laughs> yeah. what Emmy had to do. Um, but it probably hasn't improved enough still. You've only got to think back to when you are a kid and how important your role models were. And you look to these people to show you what you can do. And whenever you're reading, you know, a biography of someone who's succeeded in some field, there's often a point where they say, I saw such and such and they looked like me. And so I thought, well, if they can do it, I can. And it's the same in all these fields. You know, we need a huge range of people. We need to bring in the diversity into all the STEM fields so that any young person looking at them can say, that looks like me. If they can do it, I can. Women make up less than 10% of the maths professors in this country. I think it was somewhere around 6% of them. And so it's it's going back to that. If you don't see women in the field that, that you want to go into, do you know it's even open to you? Yeah. And it's an interesting thing because I also saw that um, girls from single-sex schools are more likely to go into maths and I myself went to a single sex school and I, I was thinking about it and I thought it's really interesting because I don't think I knew that it was a thing that there were fewer girls in when I chose to do maths at university because obviously at A level there were fewer girls in the class but that's just because it was maths I didn't think anything of it and it was only when I got to university and I was like oh wait yeah no there's really not many of us here and so I think it's being able to see that there are more women doing it and that means at every level we need to see more maths teachers, we need to see more women working in STEM, they need to be more visible, we need to see more maths lecturers, more maths professors across the board. Yeah, definitely. Steps are being taken, they're definitely trying to encourage more women into the field. And I think Emmy would be probably pleased with, with where we've got to, but I think there's still a long way to go. <laughs> Okay, let's get back to Emmy and Bavaria in the early 1900s. I assume that Emmy has this maths bug 
and nowhere to pursue it. How does she get around that? Mm, so after school, she has the opportunity to teach languages to girls, but it really doesn't excite her. What she really wants to do is pursue learning about maths. So she makes a really unconventional choice as a woman. She decides to carry on studying maths at her local university of Erlangen, where her father is also a lecturer. But women aren't allowed to study at universities then? Yes. In fact, two years earlier, the academic senate of the university had declared that allowing mixed-sex education would overthrow all academic order. As one leading academic wrote, I think the female brain is unsuitable for mathematical production. I mean, that's very cheeky. I, I think that the academic then said, oh, but Emmy is an exception. And it's just like, well, how that, you that can't just say that's so nice. <laughs> but so, so what does she do? So Emmy is, is really canny. And throughout her life, she manages to find ways to do the things that she really wants to do. So at times she convinces universities to let her audit maths courses, which Dominique referenced earlier. And it means she can sit in on them and observe and learn. And at other times she persuades them to allow her to work unpaid supporting other lecturers, which basically means teaching courses in someone else's name. And in 1903, Bavaria finally permits women to attend university. And so Emmy is already prepared and she jumps at the chance. She enrolls at Erlangen, where she's one of the only two women in a university of 986 students. Wow. As far as I gather, in, in England, women, and again, this is all about being allowed and permitted and et cetera, et cetera, but, but they could attend university from 1868. So this is, what, 35, 35 years, uh, do the maths. <laughs> <laughs> um, no pressure. <laughs> uh, uh, 35 years later. So Germany is lagging you know, a bit behind, a generation behind, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Emmy gets her PhD in 1907. And she's one of the first German women to get a PhD in any subject. But even so, she's still not accepted as a teaching member of staff because they just won't accept women lecturers. So Emmy then goes to Göttingen University in central Germany and she essentially teaches with her lectures billed under the mathematician David Hilbert's name. Other male faculty members try to block the move, with one arguing. What will our soldiers think when they return to the university and find that they are required to learn at the feet of a woman? So teaching is really the holy grail for Emmy. And in 1919, you know, the war is lost and Germany's in revolution. Women get the vote and they're finally allowed to teach in universities. So Emmy becomes an unofficial associate professor, although it's still unpaid. And although Göttingen finally begin paying Emmy as a lecturer in 1923, she never becomes a fully-fledged professor. I mean, the stuff you've been saying, it must have been uh, demoralising at the very least for mm. Emmy. I mean, you know, s someone who is so committed to maths, who's clearly so intelligent, and yet not being paid, not being recognised, continually being pushed aside. I mean, how does, how, how did she deal with that? I always get the sense, I don't know if it's accurate or not, but I get the feeling by the way that she's described that she wasn't necessarily raging against the machine. It was just no. this quiet resignation. She just carried on as though she, she was compelled that all she wanted to do was the maths. All she wanted to do was 
was was maths and was to educate and help others. And she's always described. I think Herman Vale describes her as a, as warm like a loaf of bread. Yeah, <laughs> so you get yeah. this this sort of quite maternal, and she, she that's all she wants to do. Everything else is irrelevant. She just sort of carries on, and these obstacles are thrown at her, and she very quietly just walks around them or climbs over them yeah. to do what she really wants to do. And it's it's admirable. Uh, one mathematician colleague wrote of her. She was a very peculiar personality, roughly built with a large nose and inelegant movements. And she trudged while lecturing, the opposite of an elegant lady. But these were outward appearances. More importantly, she was an altogether good person, free of all selfishness, free of all vanity, never posing and always willing to help everyone whenever she could. I mean, that's, that's fascinating because you would never describe a male... Uh, uh, mathematician in those ways no. even if he was the ugliest brute on earth I know um, it's so harsh yeah it, it's it, awful it is continually re- referencing back again and again and again to the fact that she isn't the academic archetype of, of what is expected in, in a German university she's already held to different standards yeah. than her male counterparts isn't she yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> So while she's at Göttingen University, Emmy does trailblazing work in a whole number of different areas, but especially abstract algebra, one of the really big mathematical innovations of the 20th century, and Emmy is hugely influential in shaping it. And she doesn't stop there either. Her work in physics is also really groundbreaking, but her main claim to fame isn't so much the theorem she proved, but her methodology. Her methodology gives her students room to grow as individuals and develop their own ideas. But really crucially, she brings people together, the sum greater than the parts. And as a result, many of her students go on to be amazing mathematicians themselves. It's interesting you say about her her methodology. I mean, part of that is going to be going for long walks in the countryside. But she said, My methods are really methods of working and of thinking which is why they have crept in everywhere anonymously. And one of her students says of her that she used to say, the proof is now conceived abstractly and therefore made transparent. Which sat Dominique's looking at me with raised eyebrows <laughs> at that point. That sounds like that's something I could understand, <laughs> but I think that really we have reached the limit, Carla, of, of your and mine <laughs> understanding of math. So, yes. Dominique. Um, <laughs> I should probably just explain that my understanding goes nowhere near as far as Emmy Nurtis, but I'll certainly try and help yeah, somebody. Please, can you try and help us understand something about it? So, the way I look at abstract algebra is, in itself, it's the study of these, these structures. And if you imagine a group of boxes... And they're all the same shape and size and maybe even colour. And what someone like Emmy or someone who's studying abstract algebra is doing is they're really analysing these boxes. They're trying to come up with all the rules they can find about these boxes. They learn everything they can. They might not completely know or understand what's in the boxes, but by knowing something about the box itself, you can get more information. So then if someone comes in from another field, whether they're coming from chemistry or physics or cryptography, and they say, I've got a box that looks like yours and I don't quite understand what's inside it, then someone like Emmy can say, well, I know a lot about the box. So if I can (laughs) tell you everything I know about that, you can then use that to understand what's in the box itself. 
itself. And that is a little bit like what she was doing in abstract algebra and in ring theory. It's understanding these structures, understanding the properties that they all share. And then if you have something else that looks a lot like that structure, you already know a lot about its properties. So if it, okay. if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Perhaps it's a duck. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mm. So we've got these boxes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's some professors rolling their eyes at the moment, but I think it's a nice way of understanding it. It's, yeah. So, I mean, another way of thinking about it is we're talking about structures called groups and rings, the rings of the ring theory that, that Emmy deals with. And one way of looking at them is with our counting numbers. So if you think of numbers as a, a set of things, so these are the numbers positive and negative. And one of the ideas is that Let's say that you add two numbers. You get another number that's part of the set. And this is sort of the idea behind a group, is that you can you take two objects and you combine them to make a new object. But that can go beyond numbers. Even though we get a lot of the properties from looking at numbers, anything that sort of looks like that, anything that models the properties, can then be applied. And so that's the sort of the starting point. It does work for numbers, these groups and rings, but it also works for other constructs like polynomials or shapes in, in other fields. And so it's, it's got, that's why it has such a, a, a wide reach of applications. You can then get a physicist walking in and say, my box looks the same as this. Exactly. And it's then about being able to apply the things that she has learnt through abstract algebra to whole other fields and other sectors. Exactly. So she knows a lot about a construct known as a ring. She knows she's explored the properties of it. She really understands how different things can affect these rings. Then someone else from another field can say, I've got this construct and it seems to satisfy a lot of the properties of your ring. And if it does, if it is sort of similar in a way, then that can lead to a lot of other insights about it. And is a ring literally a ring? No, not in the jewellery sense. Um, in the mathematical sense, a ring is a set of elements that all satisfy a bunch of rules. So these elements could be numbers, and some of the rules they need to satisfy are that we must be able to add them together, multiply them or subtract them from each other with all the usual rules of arithmetic. So an example of a ring that we're probably all familiar with is the integers. So those are our whole numbers, positive and negative and, and zero. And we can always add two numbers together and we'll get another whole number. And by that, I mean, we're never going to get a fraction. And the same applies for multiplication and subtraction. And there are a few other rules that these numbers have to satisfy. So, for example, adding 2 plus 3 is the same as adding 3 plus 2. They're both going to equal 5. That's a property called commutativity. Now, because these integers satisfy these rules, we consider them, along with the operations of addition and multiplication, to form what's known as a ring. It's quite an abstract concept, and the elements don't even have to be numbers. They could be polynomials, which you might remember from algebra, or matrices, or really anything else you can find that fits the bill. And the, okay. Does that make any sense? No, it, make, no, it, <laughs> it does, does make it sense. Does. Yeah, does it does. Does it make sense, you. Carla? Well, as in, <laughs> it's the closest I'm ever going to get to when I do this. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so the next question is, how does that abstract stuff move into something which is more concrete? She pops out of mathematics with a sort of mathematical skeleton key and she hands it over to the physicists and ever since they've just been trying it out and opening more and more doors with it. So although it is connected to general relativity, 
it's they're finding so many more uses for it. It's this skeleton key that's helping them even in this day and age with particle physics and the Higgs boson and all of that. It's doing so much. And it's an idea that's been borrowed from mathematics that she's managed to apply to physics and now physicists are able to apply in lots of other areas. That's really how I see Emmy's contribution in physics and it's still only part of her overall contribution because if you were to ask a mathematician what they know Emmy for, it's really going to be her later work in, in ring theory and abstract algebra. So she did the, just testament to how much she really did. Wow. It, was, it really was. She was revolutionary. Where, where does Einstein come into this and where does Emmy's abstract understanding of my box could be the same as your box turn into something around the theory of relativity? So... One thing that mathematicians really love is generalising. They love to generalise. They love to take the biggest range of things possible. And another concept that's key to abstract algebra is the idea of symmetry. And we sort of know symmetry as, you know, cutting something in half and it being the same both sides or rotating a shape. And that is definitely symmetry. But when you generalise symmetry, you have the idea that if you take an object and you do something to it, and once you've done that, it looks the same in some sense, you say that that object is symmetric. So we go further than just rotating a shape or flipping something over an axis. We go further into a more general idea of symmetry. This is at the heart of abstract algebra and the heart of what Emmy would have been doing. So if she's dealing with these really generalised symmetries, and then she comes across the universe which happens to just be a special case of one of her generalizations. she can apply everything that she knows to the whole universe itself. And when she finds the symmetries in the universe, it leads her to all the results that she already knew from maths. Can you explain general relativity to us? <laughs> wow. in, in some sort of manner of speaking, we Brilliant. could sort yeah. of try. It's, it's Einstein's theory of gravity. So imagine that space is just one giant trampoline and you've got large marbles. They're probably marbles are a bit small. Maybe large boulders, and they have some sort of weight to it. Now, if you roll one of your smaller marbles across the trampoline, it will just try and carry on in a straight line. If you put a large boulder in the centre of the trampoline, it's going to create a depression in the trampoline, right? It's going to sag. And now, that smaller marble that's rolling in, as soon as it heads towards that bigger marble, it's going to start curving inwards and towards yeah. and roll down. This is space. The big, this, is, okay. this is how gravity works. And this is how Einstein understood it in his theory of general relativity. It's the idea that matter warps space-time in the same way as a big boulder would warp a trampoline. Gravity is just an effect of the warping of space-time. It's the effect of, of matter, a big object warping, literally warping space-time and creating a curved area. And what's the relativity bit? Well, the relativity bit is about the relationship between time and space. Because the speed of light is constant, then you might remember one of the formulas from school, speed times time equals distance. So if your speed is always constant, it never changes, the speed of light never changes, that means it's time and distance that are changing. And these are really difficult concepts because we sort of think, well, no, time is the same for everyone. We all experience time in the same way, but we don't. The faster you're going, the slower time is for you. Time and distance are relative. And this is what you're talking about with the train in the sense that if you're stood on a platform and a train is whooshing past you, it might be a 100-metre train. And if it's going, you know, it can't go at the speed of light because nothing with mass can, but if it's going really quickly enough, you'll see the train 
as being shorter than it is. The distance is literally different for you. It's relative to your position as the observer and the thing that's being observed. It's not, they're not these absolute figures that never change. And that's sort of the idea behind it. It's not, yeah, it's not so much Doctor Who, it's more interstellar. Yes, no, it really is. It really is. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's very similar to how Matthew McConaughey goes off and he doesn't age, does he, Mm. when he's out there? Because time is going slower for him because he's further away from from the gravity. He's zooming around much quicker and he comes back and his daughter has gotten older than him. And it's a concept that it's happening all the time, but on such a minute level that we can't really feel it. So... I assume in some way, if I was to get up and run around this building, I'd be moving faster than you. And so I'd come back a little bit younger than you because I'm moving faster. <laughs> but we don't really see these things. But when you come to the, the big wide world or the wide universe, rather, the, the, the effects can be more pronounced. I'm so pleased we've wow. got the theory of relativity. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Cram that into an episode yeah. of Trapped History. Do you want to know where Emmy Nerta comes into yeah. it? Yeah, please. Okay. Yeah. So you might be familiar with one of uh, Newton's laws, the law of conservation of energy. And it's the idea that energy is never created or destroyed. It just transforms from one form to another. So this was a a well-established fact, and the theory of conservation of energy worked quite well in Einstein's special relativity from 10 years earlier, but it was breaking down in the world of general relativity. And Einstein sort of fudged the maths a little bit. He sort of put in um, an equation that ended up being a bit trivial. It sort of didn't really say anything about anything. And that's where the mathematicians David Hilbert and Felix Klein come into it, because they had a look at it, and as mathematicians, they were like, "Mm -mm, this, this doesn't work, this isn't right. And they needed to fix conservation of energy in the general relativity theorem. And they couldn't do it themselves, but they knew a woman who could. And that woman was obviously Emmy Nata. And she, because of her work in symmetries, in a mathematical sense, was able to, this was the the generalised case, that she was able to, to apply to this. So she was able to look at the symmetries of space and apply everything that she knew mathematically and show eventually through her two theorems how the conservation of energy could and eventually did work in general relativity. Okay, so it's onwards it's onwards and upwards all round for Emmy. You know, she's <laughs> fabulous. She gets a clutch of Nobel Prizes, field oh, medals, all those on, sort of Osborne. things. This is trapped history, and you know it's never that easy. Yeah, but we, you know, we, we surely we've got to acknowledge where Emmy's got to. You know, sheer force of willpower and mm. intellect. She manages to learn in a woman-free academic system. True. Then she teaches in it. Then she establishes her own school of mathematics, creates a new discipline of abstract algebra. Yes, but you know what's coming over the hills, Win. 5th of March 1933 and Hitler assumes power in Germany. Okay, yeah, you're right. Bavaria, where Emmy grew up, is this powder keg. And really, if you go back to the end of the First World War, it's, you know, where where Germany loses the war, Germany collapses in 1919, the Kaiser uh, flees the country. But especially in Bavaria, there's a revolution. It's a communist revolution, very uh, socialist and radical. There's counter-revolutions. There are street battles between right-wing groups of ex-soldiers um, and, and the communists. And it's into this world where you get this mustachioed corporal turning up um, and the Nazi party is born in the beer halls of Munich in the countryside in, in Bavaria. And that's the world which surrounds Emmy and her family. 
which foretells, you said, yeah, yeah, the 5th of March, 1933. Mm -hmm. So 5th of March, Hitler wins a majority in the Reichstag. It's a, it's a theoretically a free and fair election, but it was not in, in so many ways. 22nd of March, less than three weeks later, Dachau, the first concentration camp, opens. 23rd of March, the Enabling Act is passed and that enshrines totalitarianism in law. It gives Hitler full powers to rule Germany without parliament. Three weeks. The 31st of March and the 7th of April, there are two laws which come into play called the Coordination Laws, which dissolve all existing state and local authorities by the end of that month, by the end of April, and they have to then be re-established under Nazi rules and in the Nazi image. 1st of April, there is a nationwide, they call it a boycott uh, of Jewish shops, but it's essentially a very violent response to Jews across Germany, and it prefigures Kristallnacht, which happens four years later. So that is less than a month later. 21st of June, SPD, the party which Emmy had been a member of, is banned. 14th of July, the Nazis declared Germany's only legal political party. But most frighteningly of all, in particular for Emmy and, and her family, on the 7th of April, so barely a month after 5th of March when Hitler uh, wins full power, you have the Civil Service Restoration Act, which isn't restoring anything. It is a overtly anti-Semitic law and it requires non-Aryans, essentially Jews, to be dismissed from any government position. And that isn't just civil servants, it's, it's teachers, it's professors, it's judges. Very soon it, it includes lawyers, doctors and other professionals. And so it is just astonishing that within the space of just over a month, Germany has transformed itself into an overtly totalitarian, racist and anti-Semitic state. And I, I assume that it is this law, the Civil Service Restoration Act, which catches up with Amy Carla. Yeah, you're absolutely right there, Roswin. And as a Jewish academic and a socialist woman at that, Emmy really doesn't stand a chance in Nazi Germany. And really sadly, she ends up losing the job that she fought so hard to get. And there's absolutely nothing she can do but accept the decision. But there was a concerted campaign to try to save her with mathematicians writing into the university. These are some of the things that they wrote. German science will suffer a very serious loss should Miss Noether be forced indirectly to move abroad. As much as we welcome the national revolution and all its effects, we also regret that Professor Noether was placed on leave of absence. I mean, that's fascinating because that, there's this whole campaign to try and keep her in her job. Mm. And the people writing these letters, they really have to try to couch what they're saying mm. in terms where they're not going to end up in Dachau. She's out of a job and no university in Germany can hire her now. And she says, this thing is much less terrible for me than it is for many others. Um, she writes that in a letter to one of her fellow mathematician colleagues. I, I suppose she seems, well, she seems resigned to, to, uh, to her fate. Absolutely. And the way that Emmy talks, some say it can be hard to tell whether she was a, a tower of moral strength or maybe she was a bit naive and maybe she underestimated the danger, like so many of her Jewish compatriots. I mean, we're back to this sort of it, it couldn't happen here 
worldview, this mm. view that, okay, Hitler says a lot of violent racist things, but surely doesn't really mean it. They'll be gone soon. Um, he's just trying to appease his base. This is the sort of thing that we have become used to in, in world politics nowadays. But just this idea that, you know, we'll, we'll hold firm and we'll get through this. It'll, it'll all sort of sort itself out. Mm, but sadly, it didn't. And it wasn't just Emmy who's affected. And in the end, 52 members of the Göttingen faculty lose their jobs. And that's more than a fifth of the entire teaching staff. So what, what happens for Emmy now? I mean, surely Germany is toxic for her. Mm, it is absolutely toxic. So she knows she needs to get out of Germany and quickly. Um, for her, it's a toss-up between Oxford University here in England and Bryn Mawr, which is the gold standard women's college in Pennsylvania. And it's the only college in America with a doctoral programme in maths. So Emmy accepts their offer. She moves to the States. And she's paid pretty well. She's paid $4,000, which is around $76,000 today. And while she's there, she sets up the German Mathematicians Relief Fund, asking for contributions of between 1% to 4% of emigrants' incomes. So maybe she's not that naive after all. <laughs> but sadly, her time at Bryn Mawr is tragically short. In 1935, she has surgery to remove a tumour and she dies unexpectedly four days later. The maths community goes into mourning. They've really lost a, a shining star. Her friend and fellow mathematician Hermann Weil later wrote, Emmy Noether. Her courage, her frankness, her unconcern about her own fate, her conciliatory spirit was... In the midst of all the hatred and meanness, despair and sorrow surrounding us, a moral solace. Okay. Do you think that by 1935 was, was Emmy done? Had she finished her work? Or do you think there was other stuff that she would have carried on doing? That, so there's two Noether theorems. Was there potentially a third? Well, those theorems really do relate to her first epoch in maths, and she was absolutely still had had more to give. And I think if you listen to Hermann Weyl's eulogy, I think he he does mention something about her being taken in her prime. I think she was very much still still contributing and still had a lot more to give. And and who knows what would have come in the next twenty years? Hopefully, Dominique will be able to help us with this one as well. But in terms of Emmy's legacy, what? Where are we with Emmy Noether now in 2023? Her work is still very much permeating both maths and physics. Mm. And so her legacy is, is really still standing. And it's, as I mentioned earlier, about that sort of skeleton key that mm. they just keep trying out and it keeps opening new doors. And that's the same whether you're looking at it in maths or in physics. And so, yeah, she really has, her work really has stood the test of time and... It's that whole standing on the shoulders of giants that I think Newton sort of mentioned once. And I think a lot of mathematicians and physicists are really standing on her shoulders to push the boundaries of both physics and abstract algebra, using the work that she did still today to make new discoveries. Yeah, I think she definitely would have continued to do great things. Absolutely. absolutely. And ultimately, she really just completely followed her heart. And she was so uncompromising about that. And she wasn't bothered about earning money. She didn't care about recognition. Um, she didn't have a love life that we're aware of. And she just wanted to focus on unravelling the mysteries of the world and, and helping others, like you say. So a true pioneer. 
Yeah, she really mm. was. And one thing that I thought was kind of lovely in a weird way is that obviously in the German language they have masculine, feminine and neuter unlike what we have and the idea that they referred to her in the masculine as a term of respect and endearment which is sort of lovely. <laughs> they, they meant well at the time. They meant well, they? yeah. You get, the, you get the spirit of the, yeah. of the thing. Yeah. <laughs> How things have changed. Yeah. Yeah. So Dominique, before we wrap up as with all our guests, we ask who you'd like to nominate for the Trapped History Hall of Fame, someone who we've never heard of but really should have. So, Dominique, who would you like to be in it? So I would like to nominate Sophie Germain, French mathematician. Um, she was born in 1776 and much like Eminata, she was really barred from the world of mathematics and despite this, she managed to achieve so much but sadly... A lot of her achievements weren't recognised, um, even though some of her theories led to the construction of the Eiffel Tower, to the solving of Fermat's last theorem, she still was denied access. And I think she was a mathematical brilliance that never really reached her potential because she was denied the education that was often given to men. Dominique, that's fantastic. If, if you want to hear the full nomination, do please tune in to the Hall of Fame bonus So, Oswin, who have you got for us next? Well, we're, strangely enough, we're continuing the German theme. In the next episode, we're going to be looking at the complex and the messy world of the women who flew for Hitler. Wow, that's some heavy stuff there. That is some heavy stuff, <laughs> but it will open your eyes and open your ears. So tune in. You've been listening to Trapped History, written and presented by Carla O'Shaughnessy and Oswin Baker. Our engineer has been MK Lee. Catch up with more Trapped History on Instagram and visit trappedhistory.com for transcripts, extended interviews and more. And remember what James Baldwin said, people are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. See you soon.